Brothers and sisters, hopefully you've had uh, opportunity, good opportunity to kind of get out into your neighborhoods over the last few weeks. I've loved being able to hear uh, about how uh, people have gotten out in their neighborhoods. And um, I'll confess, uh, the assignment last week, of course, was uh, to go out and to at least find one new neighbor, to learn one new neighbor's name. And uh, it got to yesterday afternoon, and Megan and I had not had much time uh, to get out there. So finally, around 5 o'clock or 5.30, I said, okay, we've got to get out there. We may be out there all night, but we have to get out there. And so we did, and fortunately, someone was mowing their lawn that we didn't know uh, her name. And so uh, the six of us just kind of sat there and waited. And eventually she had to stop, and so we got her name. And as soon as we got her name, we just left. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. But hopefully you have had opportunities to do that. Earlier uh, at, the early, at the first service, um, you may have seen this person walking out, but there was a, a gentleman with a mohawk, and um, I don't think he did this in order to neighbor, but what he did tell me was it's amazing how many neighbors he has met simply because he got this new kind of mohawk. And so if you are struggling with wondering how you can meet neighbors, Either get a mohawk or get a mohawk wig uh, if you don't have the hair. But uh, that's just a different way um, if you're wondering how you can reach out. So, uh, so today we continue our look at neighboring, and we're going to look at two texts. Um, our thematic text, which is, comes to us from the Gospel of Mark, and then we'll also look at the Gospel of Luke today. And so the first text from Mark 12, verses 28 through 31. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them disputing. With one another, and seeing that he answered them well, he asked, Which commandment is the first of all? And Jesus answered, The first is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. The second is this, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment that is greater than these. And then the second text for us this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Now as they went on their way, he, being Jesus, entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. So she came to him and asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all of the work by myself? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part which will not be taken away from her. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and let's pray. God, we give you praise for this beautiful spring day. We are reminded of your warmth. We're reminded of your love for us. And God, we thank you, Lord, for the many ways in which we see you working through us, whether it be in Romania or in Mexico or even just across the street. And so I pray, Lord, that you would be with us this morning, that you would open up our eyes and our ears to how we might follow you even more in the days ahead. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. 
So again, of course, we've been talking about neighboring and the importance of loving not just kind of a generic neighbor, but perhaps loving our literal neighbors. And uh, as we've been kind of talking about that, last week we talked about one of the things that oftentimes inhibits us from loving our literal neighbor are our fears. And we have a lot of different fears. Uh, fears perhaps of rejection, fears of looking strange, um, fears that something bad may happen to us. There are a lot of fears, a lot of things that can easily keep us from actually loving our neighbors. And as we talked last week, one of the things perhaps that we can wrestle with is is beginning to grow to where you have a larger fear, not of those things, but of missing out on what God is doing in your neighborhood. A real belief that as we uh, kind of overcome those fears, as we go out into our neighborhoods, as we take risks, that oftentimes we will see that Jesus is already there and at work. And, And what might happen if we were more afraid of missing out on God's kingdom than we are on any of those other things that oftentimes keep us from actually loving our neighbors. And so this week, we want to talk about one other thing that oftentimes inhibits us. The the book that we've been using, The Art of Neighboring, says that perhaps the greatest enemy to our loving our literal neighbors is a lack of time. And I think that that's probably pretty true. I think that most of us, we would love to love our neighbors, but we simply can't find the space. We can't find the time, you know, and, and we're kind of, we're people who like to have, to like to do things. And so if this is something else to do, then we'd be willing to do it. And my guess is two weeks ago when I uh, encouraged you all to go out and to walk your neighborhood and to pray for your neighbors, that probably some of you got home and you, you took out the to-do, the to-do list and you started kind of, you know, going, oh, okay. And then finally you said, oh, great, there's a space. And down here you finally put down, right? But it's at the, the bottom of an already ever-increasing to-do list, right? Or, or maybe you look through your calendar and you said, okay, that's a, that's a great idea. Let me find some white space where I can actually do it. And you said, oh, great, there it is. We can totally go out and pray and walk in our neighborhoods between 3 and 3.30 in the morning. There's nothing else right there. This is great, right? We are a people who oftentimes are remarkably busy and hurried, right? And, and what's interesting, of course, as the book points out, is that we have technology that was supposed to help us, right? It was supposed to make us even more efficient, right? It was supposed to give us more free time, right? We got cell phones, right? And you can, you can sit there and you can uh, be on the phone while you're driving and you can get work done that way. Or perhaps when you're caught up in a line somewhere, the BMV or wherever else, you can scroll through emails, right? You've got the, the great invention of the Keurig, right? I mean, now you save at least three or four minutes every day because you don't have to do all this preparation. You don't have to clean up. You just put in a pod and you throw it in the trash. That saves us time, right? You've got the DVR. What a great invention, right? The shows are 30 minutes, but they're not, right? They're only 22 minutes. And so every time you watch a show and you DVR through the commercials, you've saved you guys are good. Eight minutes, right? They'll sit in there counting with his fingers. That's right. Eight minutes, right? And yet, Miracles of all miracles, we have found things to do in that space, right? We have created other things that give us so that really what has happened because of these other things is that we just learned how to multitask even more. 
And there's a part of us that loves all of this because we love being productive, right? Perhaps we wake up early in the morning and maybe you're training for the mini and so you wake up a little bit earlier and you, you go out for a run and then you, then you head home and you take a quick shower and you eat some breakfast, right? And you see the kids and you, you give them a kiss and you say, have a great day. And then you go to work. Maybe you stop off the dry cleaners to drop something off or pick something up and then you head to work. Maybe you meet someone else for lunch. Maybe on your way back from home, you're on the phone with someone from church because you're trying to figure out another activity that you need to do. And then you, then you stop off and you pick up the kids and you take them to Lions Park or to Badger's Field or Interactive Academy. On the way, of course, you stop off at McDonald's or Taco Bell and you go there and there's their event. Of course, while they're at their event, whatever it is that they're doing, you're working on some things or you're catching up on news or you're looking at Facebook and then you head home. And as soon as you get home, you make sure that your kids are doing their homework, right? And then you, you, uh, you, you maybe you give your, your spouse a kiss and then you put your kids to bed and then you catch up on a few more emails. And, and, and finally, then you say, whew, we have a little bit of space. And so you decide to watch an episode of House Hunters or, or maybe the last half of the Pacers game. And you say to one another, oh, my goodness, we're just so crazy. It's just, just crazy. We've got to stop doing this. And then you wake up the next morning and you decide to go to spinning because you don't want to put too much stress on your joints. And then you go to this place and then you go to that place again and again and again. And it doesn't matter whether you're married or single or have children or do not, whether you're 25 or whether you're 75, we are a people who have a lot of things to do and we are in massive hurries. And the hard part of it is that none of those things are in and of themselves bad. It's good to exercise. It's good to eat breakfast. It's good to see your children. It's good to work. It's good to take care of yourself and to provide for your family. It's good for children to be able to play a sport or to sing in the choir. It's good to eat again for dinner. It's good to have a little bit of downtime in order to kind of, you know, just relax a little bit. All of those things are good in and of themselves. The difficulty comes when we begin to chain all of them together in such a way that we become remarkably hurried. But of course, we look just like oftentimes the person who lives next to us and the person who lives next to them and the person who lives next to them. And as someone has pointed out, you don't just wake up and decide to live a chaotic life. It just sort of happens. And in many ways, this seems like a modern-day phenomena, perhaps. Uh, you know, and certainly, I, I mean, at least in my own sense, it feels like it has gotten more hurried. And yet, if Ecclesiastes is to be believed and there's nothing new under the sun then perhaps this has been around for at least as long as Mary and Martha. Mary and Martha is a remarkably succinct story, and yet it seems to speak to us in our day and age, perhaps more powerful than almost any other story. Right? There is Martha, and what speaks to us in some sense is that Martha seems like she, of course, is doing what's right. 
right? Jesus is talking about, always talking about welcoming people. Since the time of the Old Testament, we've been told to welcome people, to welcome the stranger, the person who doesn't live where you are. When a person comes in, to welcome them, to care for them. And this is what Martha is doing. Jesus is walking through, and Martha has opened up her home, we are told. And so there is Jesus, and there is Martha, and she's going about trying to make her house as hospitable as is possible. And there is her lazy sister who's just sitting watching and listening to Jesus and you know how this story goes it doesn't go exactly like this I mean it mostly goes like this but but look at to kind of you know make it a little bit more succinct you know the first thing she did to try to give off the impression that she wasn't happy was not this these words right no you you know what it's like because 85 percent of you are Martha so you know what you do right you don't just out and out say it you sit there and as you're kind of cleaning that last dish you're kind of looking over at her right Anything else I can get you, Jesus, or you, Mary? Anything that you need? Until finally, right, it begins to bubble up, right? The passive aggressiveness has has reached its height, although even here, she doesn't actually address Mary. She addresses Jesus, right? Please, Jesus, can you tell my lazy sister to actually do something? Now, let me take a quick aside which is to say, before we get to Jesus' response, I want to point out to you that the fact that actually Martha would not have been the only person who was upset with Mary, that actually most of those who had gathered would have been upset with Mary because Mary was not where she was supposed to be. Mary was a woman, and the women were not supposed to be right there. The women were supposed to be doing womanly things, right? That meant cleaning. That meant helping her out in the kitchen, those kinds of things. They were not supposed to be sitting there like a pupil to a, 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 to a teacher, listening to Jesus. And so the reality is that she's cutting against all of the grain. She's going against what everyone thought she should be doing, what everyone else would have been doing. She's remarkably countercultural, and she seems to not care that she's doing something different than what everyone else deems is appropriate. And so Jesus As he listens to the question of Martha, he decides to respond not to Mary, but he responds actually, of course, to Martha because he sees that Martha is distracted by far too many things, that she's worried about way too much. And so he says then to Martha, you are worried and distracted by the many things that you are doing. And the word distracted here in Greek connotes a sense of being pulled or being dragged in different directions. And so what Jesus is saying is, you've got so many different things on your plate, so many different things that you are trying to do that you have forgotten to focus on what is most important, which is simply to be with Jesus at this time and to follow and to hear what it is that Jesus is calling you too. And the other interesting thing about what Jesus says is that he tells Martha that she has actually, that Mary has chosen to do the better part. And I think that's significant because frequently when it comes to the things that we do, 
We classify them as either being good or bad. But Jesus seems to be reframing it into a question oftentimes, not just bad or good, but good or better. So that what Martha is doing and being hospitable is not necessarily bad, but at this time and in this place, it would have been better for her to simply been in the presence of Jesus. And I think that's why it is so hard for us to get a handle on time. Because so many of the things that we are doing when it comes to time are really, really good. But what Jesus is beginning to ask is, in the midst of doing all of these good things, are you actually missing out on what is better or what is more important? And the reality is that for the vast majority of us, we are so hurt in such a hurry doing so many good things that we have no idea about what we are missing in terms of what is actually most important. And we will not, with great frequency, even be aware of how we are missing what is better until we either have a nervous breakdown or we have a bad medical report or we receive a letter. Two months ago, as I've said before, as most of you know, I was in Romania for 11 days. Romania was great. And you know what happens when you go on trips like this. If you've been on a trip like this or if you've gone camping together or whatever with a group of people, which is that you always end up having conversations about things that you would never have if you just saw them for five or 10 minutes in the gathering space, right? Sometimes you, you, you enjoy the conversation. Sometimes you find out things about the people you're with that you'd rather not know, right? I mean, this is just kind of what happens on these kind of trips. But on, as a part of this trip, um, I got to go with uh, um, one day Gall, and I think I've said this before perhaps, but if you ever have a chance to go on a mission trip with Dave Gall, you should always say yes. Dave is a remarkably smart man, a very wise man. Dave chaired the committee that brought me here. Um, I was, I, I'm not saying, I, I didn't mean to connect that. My apologies. No, I'm just kidding, sort of. So, um, but Dave's a very bright guy. So when Dave talks, right, I like to listen to what he has to say. Uh, And so Dave, on this particular day, began to tell me a story about his own past. And as he was telling me the story, after he got done, I said to myself, Jerry, this is not a story that you want to forget. You need to remember what it is that Dave said. And as I thought about the story or about the sermon for today, I thought to myself, I don't want, if at all possible, just for me to not forget the story. I want for you to be able to hear the story as well. And so I asked Dave if he'd be willing to tell the story. And Dave, I'd be lying if I said he jumped up and down and was very excited about it. But after enough kind of arm twisting and prayer, uh, Dave decided that he would share his story. And so Dave, I'm going to ask if you'll come up and I'll, uh, we can sit up here on these little stools and you can, uh, uh, you can share a little bit of your, of your story with us. We, today is a day of making uh, the Shelton kids do things they don't want to do by coming up here and talking. And Dave, you as well. So thank you for being up here, brother. It's really good to be here. Yeah, I know. I can tell. So uh, Dave, will you tell me kind of what your life looked like around 25 years ago? Well, 25 years ago, I would have been in my early 40s. Uh, I was having a successful career with a large corporation downtown Indianapolis and 
fairly senior management position. Uh, we had a beautiful home in Zionsville. We have three boys at that time. Our, youngest, our oldest son was a junior in high school. And uh, life was good. I guess I would say I was successful. And would you say that your life was pretty similar to your neighbors in terms of what you were doing and work and all that? Yeah, I think so. Uh, where we lived, there were nice homes, and it seemed like everybody was running pretty fast. Uh, and everybody was very busy. Um, one of the things that was a typical day for me was uh, I'd typically get up about 5.30 in the morning, uh, go downtown to my office to try to get some work in before the real work started about 7.30. Um, and then at the end of the day, I'd probably come home about 6 or 6.30 with a briefcase full of emails and, you know, documents and work for another, you know, couple hours with that. And so it was a, uh, I was busy. I mean, I was busy trying to, in, that, in hindsight, manage my boys try to have a relationship with my wife, uh, try to manage a, a job, which I was very, uh, I very much enjoyed. It was, uh, I'm competitive, and I was in an arena that uh, you can compete, and money was a way of acknowledging how you performed. So would you say you felt pretty good about things, about your life, and how things were going, how it turned out? Yes. I, I guess I'd say I was on a treadmill or whatever, but... I don't know that I really spent a lot of time thinking about my, how, how my life was going. It was just going. Okay. And so what happened that kind of changed your understanding of how you were spending your time? Well, um, one of the mornings when I came downstairs, I was, walked through the kitchen, and my son had written a letter to me. It was about three pages. Um, and he had never done that before, so, but I started, I sat down and started to read it, and the first part of the letter was very gracious. He thanked me for having the opportunity to go to a good high school, live in a nice home, and wear nice clothes. And uh, it was uh, it was nice. And then, as the letter went on, he talked about that he about seemed like the only time he had, I had time for him was like during uh, when he got the six week grades and try to encourage him to do better sometimes and so forth. So. Uh, but I, I wasn't around very much, I guess. And he was, a, he was a junior in high school at this junior point. Junior in high school. And then, but then the kicker came at the end of the letter, uh, his final sentence. You got to read it. Okay. Dave's son said, I only have one year at home before I am gone, along with our chances to know each other. And I know work is important. I know that you want us to do better through your advice. I know that you do love us. But, Dad, I also know that I really need a friend, now more than ever, and I really want it to be you. Please. So, um, I mean, I was taken aback by the letter. Um, I, and my first reaction was I was angry at my son, you know, how it, 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 ungrateful, he was, I mean, all those thoughts went through it, but then it didn't take me very long to realize that what he was asking for was absolutely legitimate. Mm -hmm. uh, I think one of the things that 
I initially struggled with is, yes, that's fine, but I also have three sons, and if friendship is important, um, how am I going to find the time to be successful at work and increase my time with my kids? And so it, it was a real dilemma for me, which forced me to go through, I guess, a lot of soul searching. Um, you know, I was making good money, um, but I think the, the thing, the reality of, of what my job was was not the money, it was, it was who I was. I realized that my identity was with that company. And when I realized that that was, was my identity, I didn't like that realization because I knew that there was more to life, even though that job was important, than the company. Um, it, it took some months to work through that. I mean, the, the job is important financially, but, but I, I didn't like that feeling of that being my identity. And um, it, gradually I learned to realize that I had many blessings. I've been, we've been given many, many blessings, but really the, the money that we had was a gift from God because God had given me certain gifts that I had that I could utilize to make money. So the, my money wasn't really my money, it was really God's money. And God gave me the gift of time, um, thankfully, but that means it's a gift from God. And so what do I do with that gift? Um, I think church is a, is a blessing and it's a... God wants us to be in church. Well, what I, what I learned over time that instead of pursuing success, I learned to try to pursue significance. And if going to church is a success, then following Christ is significant. And that caused me to approach uh, how I did my job uh, instead of trying to make more money for the company, which is obviously what you want to do in a corporation. The primary focus is on the people. How can I develop the people? Uh, with the case of my, my sons, that became a priority because our kids are not our kids. They're a gift from God. And so how do we apply significance to what our children are? Um, and the same thing with time. So. so one of the things that you talk about is the fact that how easy it was for you to get into autopilot when it mm -hmm. came to God, when it came to church, when it came to uh, your children, um, all of those things. Um, it, it's, um, it was that realization when I read that letter, thinking, hold it, this is my two-year-old son, and now he's going to go off to college. What happened? What happened to the 14 years in between? And I realized that my life was just on autopilot. You get up in the morning, you go to work. Then it was Friday. You had the weekend off. You did something. You get up on Monday, you go to through. I mean, you, you went through the whole thing. And life became a blur. Like, what am I doing? And I, I think that was the difference between before I was defining success differently. So how is your relationship with your sons now? Well... 
you know, that letter, while it was hard to receive, and it's still an emotional thing because I, I recognize how I wasted a lot of time. And it took a while for me to forgive myself for that, but you can't get it back. It's, it's gone. And so the only thing I could do is start from when that letter introduced that to me. So I would just say that letter, thank God that he wrote the letter. It took a lot of courage for him to write the letter. But I've often wondered what would, have, what would my life be if I had not received that letter. It, yeah. it was a huge gift. Yeah. So if you could go back and talk to 30-year-old Dave Gall, or perhaps a 30 or 35 or 40-year-old ZPCer, what would you say? I, I, I would say learn to center your life. Um, I, I, I would have thought that my priorities were my, my family, my job, and my church. But the reality is that I was centered on my work. I think that I would advise people to look for significance in Christ and to center your life on Christ. And then the work looks different. There's more productivity. I mean, true productivity, not more money, but more productivity. How you deal with your kids becomes a whole different perspective. That this gift that God gave us, what are we doing with that gift? Okay. So. Thanks, brother. Okay. I appreciate it, Dave. Thank you. I've had a couple months to really think about what Dave said to me. And one of the things that I've kind of focused on is the reality, the harsh reality that we simply cannot do it all. I read a book on suburbia not long ago, and one of the things it said is that suburbs offer you lots and lots of opportunities. We have all the opportunities in the world, and the struggle is, is that most of us are afraid to miss out on any of those. And so we try to engage in every good opportunity we can. And we forget what the 90th Psalm says, where the psalmist is begging the Lord. He says, teach me to number my days. And that isn't some kind of morbid request. It is a request to the Lord to help me to know that my time is limited. I will not be here forever. And when we are able to actually grapple with the fact that we cannot take advantage of every single opportunity, no matter how good it may be, then it allows us to start asking not just what is a good opportunity, but what is a better opportunity. It allows us to not just try to be, live a life of success, but also, as Dave said, a life of significance. And so what does that mean for us as followers of Jesus Christ? Well, I think one of the things that it means is that we have to be willing to ask ourselves whether we are too hurry, too, too, in too much of a hurry to actually be present. Because so often when we are in such a hurry to try to do everything, then we are not able to actually be right where we are and to love the people right where we are. 
I love the quote that John Ortberg says that I came across a couple weeks ago. Uh, It says, love and hurry are fundamentally incompatible. Love always takes time. And time is the one thing hurried people do not have. And if we are called to love our neighbor, whether it's figuratively our neighbor or our actual neighbor, then we have to ask whether or not we have the time or whether we are living too hurried. There was Jesus, and Martha is going this way and that and could not find the time to simply be present with Jesus. And I wonder, for how many of us are we in such a hurry that we do not have time to actually be present and to love them? This week, as I wrestled with the sermon and as I continue to wrestle with Dave, I had to ask myself the question of why do I find it so difficult to simply be present with my own children? So many times when I am there after work, as I'm there, I'm sitting there and I'm wondering, what else might I be doing? What else should I be doing? What else is there to do? And even when I sit there with my, with my 14-month-old baby, the last baby we pray that we will have, the last opportunity that I have to simply sit there with a bottle and to, and to simply look at her, That about 80% of the time, I am thumbing through my emails rather than just looking at her. Or how many times are Megan and I, we're, we're doing good things. We're going this way and that. We're doing good things. And yet because of all those good things that we are doing, we don't have time often to just simply be with each other. And I can assure you of this, if we are finding it difficult to simply have the time to be present and to love our family, then we are certainly going to wrestle with having the time to love the people we don't know in our neighborhoods. But if we are taking the call of Jesus seriously, then we need to ask ourselves, what do we need to say no to, no matter how good it is, so that we can follow what Jesus is asking us to do. So that we can do not just the good, but the better. Now, I don't know what that looks like for you. There is no one-size-fits-all. But I can assure you that for some of us, it means that we may be working too much. And it may just be that no matter how good that promotion offer is to you, that you need to ask yourself, is it worth it? For some of you, as difficult as this is for me to say, it very well may mean that when the church asks you to do something, to be on a committee or to join this activity, that you may need to say no. If you think it's going to keep you from actually being present in your neighborhood. For others of you, when your child is asked to be on a traveling team or or to join a select choir, you may need to ask yourself, not just is this a good opportunity, but is this the right opportunity? And if I do so, will I still have time to show, to simply be with my child and even to show them what it means to love people in their neighborhood? 
For others of us, of course, it may mean simply getting off of Facebook for a while or shutting down, turning off the television, no matter how good it might be. I'm oftentimes intrigued by how much time we spend with our virtual friends when we don't even know the people who live next to us. Now, before you come to me after the service and you say to me, are you saying that I shouldn't take this promotion or you're, you're saying you don't like travel teams or, or, or you're saying that you don't like television or that, that we shouldn't do things for the church, let me assure you that's not what I'm saying. But let me also assure you is that what I am saying is that most of us should ask harder questions about whether or not we are so distracted that we are missing out on Jesus. That we are missing out on actually being present wherever it is that we are. Whether it's with our friends or with our family or in our neighborhoods. Are we settling for good and missing out on what is better? So the assignment that I was thinking about for today is not for you to go out and to do something else in your neighborhood. But you have a couple of choices. One of those choices is simply to do an audit of your time. We oftentimes, as Dave was saying, we're on autopilot. We just do what's there. And I wonder if what we're doing is really aligning with our priorities. And so maybe we can take, look back at our calendar for the last two weeks or even look at what we're doing this week and simply ask whether or not Everything we're spending our time is, is it good? And is there any margin for us to simply be with Jesus, for us to simply be in our neighborhoods? And if not, what do we need to start saying no to? Or if that seems too daunting, let me encourage you then to simply take a week off. Take a week off from, from social media. Take a week off from the television. Take a week off from whatever else it might be that tends to be ravenous of our time. Oftentimes we do those things because we have so many other things to do that we don't want to do that we want to escape by wasting time doing one of these other things. And I wonder if we long to be countercultural if we long to do, to not get caught up in what everyone else is doing, what kind of example might it be if we begin to spend our time differently? We may not give ourselves and our children every opportunity in the world, but we may give them the greatest opportunity, which is to learn about who Jesus is and to follow what he says is most important. Let us pray. Jesus, I thank you, first of all, for Dave Gall. For his courage to speak to us. For his courage to allow his story to become a part of our story. I thank you, God, for what you said to Martha. 
And I pray, God, that in the same ways that you have spoken through Dave, that you speak through Jesus to Martha, that you will speak to us. That you would help us to be a people, Lord, who do not wait, but who instead decide to live for what is better even now. May we appreciate the gift of time that you have given to us. May we not be in such a hurry to get as much done in order that what we do might be glorifying to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen.